And welcome back. Uh, as our day draws to a close, I want to thank all of you hardy folks who are sticking with us through lunch. Uh, guarantee that we'll make this worth your while for that. We really appreciate it. Uh, once again, I want you to know you can be part of this conversation, that if you uh, type in a question on your various platforms, Facebook, YouTube, uh, the Cato site or the uh, swap card. Uh, we'll get those questions and we can ask them for you for our next speaker. In addition, of course, if you use the you're on Twitter and you use the hashtag Cato California, we will get those questions as well. Uh, we certainly want you to have a chance to question our next speaker and to be part of this conversation because we really do have a terrific speaker uh, for lunch, uh, our keynote address, as you will, in this conference. Uh, Joel Kotkin is the Roger Hobbs Distinguished Fellow in Urban Studies at Chapman University. Uh, he's also the Executive Director of the Houston-based Urban Reform Institute, uh, work I've seen there as well. Uh, he is the Executive Editor of the widely read website newgeography.com and writes uh, the New Geographer column for Forbes. Uh, he has written a number of books, including The Next 100 Million, America in 2050, and the city, a global history, but he has a new book coming out on the new feudalism, uh, which I think is very reflective of the theme of this conference, and we're anxious to hear much more about that. Uh, so, Joel, I'm going to turn it over to you and let you uh, let you go with this. Okay, thank you. Uh, by the way, the book's out; it's been out for a while, actually. It's uh, going into paperback relatively soon. But anyway, um, I'm happy to do this. I I think that. Uh, I am sure that the issues that you're hearing are issues that, are, of course, appeal to people who are conservative. But I think they I've been working very hard. I'm a I'm not a conservative myself is on the issue of you know what is social justice. Um, and what we have in California is the best practitioners of social justice rhetoric and the worst practitioners of actually how it affects people in reality. So I want to get into that difference and, and you know in many ways progressivism as it is today not in the pat brown sense not in the harry truman sense not even in the bill clinton sense um has become something that i think is really making uh for a very hierarchical and unequal society so i'm going to try to share my screen hopefully this will work all right so basically um, a great phrase um, that a writer at Wired came up with, he called California feudalism with better marketing. I mean, in other words, people think of California as progressive and modern and the sort of state of the art, but in reality, um, it's uh, going in quite the wrong direction. A feudalism, as I described in the book, is about concentration of property in few hands, politics that uh, dominated by theology and, or ideology and California, it's a combination of um, anti-racism and, and climate fan fanaticism, which I think drives things. Um, lack of upward mobility. Um, when I moved to California in 1971, it was a place that people went. Um, very few people ever, um, ever left once they were here. Cost of entry for business or individuals was not particularly high. It was the epitome of the middle class, of what the middle class wanted. Um, that has all changed. Um, so basically, if you look at neo-feudalism, I break it down the, into four classes. The new aristocracy, which are the tech oligarchs. Unf you know, in some ways, 
the tech oligarchs are both a blessing and a curse to California. They completely dominate the state's politics. Um, they are um, are able really to uh, uh, to create the impression, particularly when they do IPOs, that the state doesn't have to fix its grassroots economy because there's always going to be another you know um, IPO that will bring money into the state government, which it does, and some years and others not. Clarity, university, government, media elites, um, um, almost all with the same ideologies point of view. Yeomanry, which is the middle class, which is declining, private sector middle class, and then the class that's growing most rapidly, which are serfs, in other words, people who will never own property um, and will be lifetime renters and many cases that won't have kids either. Um, the clerisy is the priesthood of power, as Daniel Bell talked about, people who want to order mass society. Um, this is a global trend. Uh, half the wealth in the world is controlled by 1% of the population. And in 2017, the uh, UK House of Commons thinks it will be about two-thirds by 2030. So let's talk about California as we are an exemplar of the new feudalism. We're creating jobs, but but um, not keeping pace. Incomes have become more unequal. Housing is incredibly unaffordable. Ownership is dropping. Poverty and overcrowding, which, by the way, overcrowding may be the single biggest problem um, in terms of uh, COVID um, infections and hospitalizations and deaths. Uh, migration, um, I just got some new numbers. We have been losing um, people in their 30s and 40s. Um, and the biggest increase of people leaving in the new numbers I just saw this morning uh, were people making about 100,000 a year. Um, wealth has become more concentrated. Um, COVID's made it worse. And of course, our education system um, is not allowing for the upward mobility that earlier generations were able to get from a, a good education system. So again, this is Antonio Garcia Martinez's comment, feudalism with better marketing. You look at an inequality. Now, it's amazing how this doesn't get reported. Is Aren't you shocked? Um, California has is one of the most unequal states. It has four of the poorest low-income MSAs in the United States, uh, Central Valley, which um, as the Bay Area and to some extent parts of coastal Southern California control the government, the interior areas have been very hard hit. Um, 86% of the jobs that we added in the last decade paid under the median income, and 48% paid under 40000 And as you can see, we've created some good jobs. We've actually had a reduction in the number of jobs um, that we had uh, in um, the middle area, um, and we've really been adding low-income jobs. So you combine low incomes and high costs, it's not so good. Um, and other states are doing much better and, 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 get, and other regions are doing much better than ours. Uh, our, even Orange County and Silicon Valley and even worse, L.A., uh, are below the national average in terms of how many $100,000-plus jobs are created for every 40,000 job. No, big surprise here, California, the highest poverty rate in the country if you adjust for costs. Um, and, of course, this is... Um, very different than what it used to be. Um, it's also one of those statistics that uh, the media doesn't seem to like very much. Um, and of course, we have homeless. Uh, we're, we're very good at producing homeless people. But I want to add, 
for every homeless person, there are numerous people staying at hotels, sleeping on people's couches, sleeping in their cars. So the homeless are really just the, the tip of the iceberg. And the big problem we have is there's no way of moving up. You don't have middle-class jobs. You don't have upwardly mobile jobs. Yes, if I've got a PhD from Caltech, I'm in good shape. Um, for most people, not so great. And we do absolutely the worst outside. Only um, Alaska uh, does worse uh, in terms of um, how our students do um, on math testing, for instance, in low income. Some of the worst schools for low income people in the United States and, and are in California. And actually, the worst one by one study is San Francisco, where I'm sure they're taught all the essentials of critical, you know, critical race theory and uh, not too much about that two and two actually does equal four. Home ownership has been lagging. This is another where, place where the middle class is in trouble. You can see that, let's say, Latinos in um, uh, in the Texas big metros, about 50% own their own home. It's about 35% in LA. And when we start drilling down, what we're finding is the Latino and African-American homeowners tend to be much older because they bought when you could afford to buy. Uh, so what's happening demographically? Um, California, um, which has historically grown faster than the national average, uh, sort of about 2015, they, the lines crossed. Um, today, California is actually, um, has actually now has negative, um, it's, it's gone negative and amazingly something I never thought I would see, uh, we're going to lose one and maybe two congressional seats. Um, and if you want to drill down a little bit more, what you can see is that in places like Los Angeles, the population of LA has been declining for years now, um. And the only places that are growing at all are in the suburbs, particularly Riverside. And of course, um, these are very areas that the state doesn't want to see grow. They want everybody to live in a studio apartment in in uh, in the heart of a big city, which um, obviously, A, they don't want to, B, it's very expensive. This, I think, is one of the most revealing statistics I wanted to share with you. Um, we've been ch chasing um, the numbers on foreign-born, because I always consider them kind of canaries in the coal mine. They're going to go where there's opportunity. And in the 80s, they came to LA in enormous numbers. In the last 10 years, um, the foreign-born population has declined. Um, and uh, in New York, it's stagnated. Chicago, by the way, is also negative. Um, and the big growth is really Nashville, Charlotte, uh, Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston. Uh, Houston, by the way, is now the most diverse city in the country. So what's happening is the foreign-born who were driving uh, California's growth in many areas uh, and certainly were very important entrepreneurially um, are now going elsewhere. Same uh, pattern in the 25 to 34 uh, pattern. Um, and this is all pre-COVID. So you've got to imagine it's probably worse now. So just to sum up, and then I'd be happy to take questions. Um, the uh, um, But the reform regulatory rules, I think this is something that people talk about and I think is quite relevant. Um, where I see a problem where I have a little disagreement with, I'm sure, some of the people at this event who say, let's get rid of all zoning and you know, what, let's wipe out the last single family neighborhoods and 
California. I, I think that's what people want. They want single family homes, townhomes. They're certainly, if they want to have children, that's where they're going to go. I think where, where there is great opportunity um, is in the suburbs and exurbs. Um, very difficult to build anything here. Many developers who are based in California are now, um, uh, if, even if they keep their offices here, doing all their development elsewhere. Um, I think creating a lot of expensive small apartments, which is all you can do economically in the core cities, um, doesn't solve any of the real problems. The real problems we have in California are housing for middle-class families, and that doesn't address the issue. Um, the, the key thing that we need to do is to allow development on the periphery and to take advantage of an enormous, enormous opportunity that we have in, um, in redundant retail and re redundant office space. Um, and there's, it's going to be ever more redundant the way things are going. Um, and this is also a regulatory issue because the regulations um, are in part, A, make it very hard to make these conversions, but also the tax structure. Local areas have no incentive to build housing because they, they depend on retail sales. Um, and if retail sales are, are uh, taken away, they have no way to pay for what they need for the new residents. I think we need to, to give more incentives to communities of all kinds um, that if they want to build um, more, um, they, they, there's a tax benefit to that. Right now, the system discourages cities from, from having um, uh, new, uh, new housing. Um, I think in terms of, 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 of employment, one of the terrible things about the climate change policies in California is we make it very hard to grow jobs in anything that relies on electricity um, or on, on, on any kind of fossil fuel um, because of the extremely high prices. So if you talk to the last steel makers in California who provide good upper middle class jobs and, and, and also a lot of good blue collar jobs, uh, they can't expand. Um, if you take a look at what's happening uh, on the, in the port, I think long term, the early electric mandates um, are already when I looked into it, uh, uh, people are thinking about going elsewhere. That's another big area of good blue collar jobs. Um, and of course, from a climate point of view, it's kind of absurd because if you take a factory and you and that factory moves to Texas or Arizona, their carbon footprint goes up just because of the weather. Um, and if it goes to China, it's likely to be powered by coal. So, you know, in a way, what this has all become is virtue signaling. We're going to show how low our emissions is. And of course, a great irony is California hasn't been particularly good at reducing emissions. And due to the fires, actually, we've done worse. So, you know, it, it's all about, you know, with the whole question of can I look at myself in the mirror as opposed to actually accomplishing anything? And by the way, you can you can talk about that with education. You can talk about that with almost any um, field that California politicians are wonderful at making heartfelt egalitarian statements and, and particularly skilled in creating policies that make things more unequal and taking away more opportunity for middle and working class people. Transportation. Um, 
In Los Angeles, we spent $20 billion on a rail system that um, has resulted in a decline in the share of people taking transit compared to 1990. Um, you know, we're going to end up with more and more, uh, you know, with the new stimulus bills and infrastructure bills, empty buses. I mean, I, I, the, I see the Orange County buses, they're empty. They were empty before COVID. And of course, they're completely empty now. So I think we have to see how do we go and have new kind of transportation policies? One would be obviously encouraging the development of, um, uh, of uh, online um, activities, which a lot of other states have been emphasizing. That's one way to reduce it. Um, and it also uh, reduce uh, the greenhouse gases, and it's it's a way to reduce traffic. Um, there are things we could do with eventually with autonomous vehicles. Um, uh, to some extent, what's happened with Uber and Lyft um, in some communities, um, actually they've gotten rid of their buses and they give vouchers for people to do Uber and Lyft to get to get to work. Um, I think there are many innovative solutions that we need that are 21st century oriented. And finally, overall, we have to stop giving this idea that if California will show the way through greenhouse gas reductions, we are insignificant. California could fall in the ocean tomorrow and it would make no demonstrable in, uh, uh, impact on climate. Um, the reality is in a month, China could wipe out everything we do in a year, in, just in the state of California. And yet, our policymakers don't even want to consider what the impact is on families and communities and workers um, by their policies. So anyway, uh, hopefully that gave you uh, some idea of where I'm coming from. And I'd be very uh, interested in uh, uh, answering any questions if you have any. I can't hear you. Once again, I'm on mute, uh, which a lot of people would prefer. But uh, once again, uh, we've got a very provocative thesis here. Uh, I think it's something that uh, people will think about a lot. Uh, I think you come at this from a very interesting perspective that uh, kind of defies the usual left-right uh, space. Um, do we do want to get you involved in this? So please, uh, if you have any questions for Joel, you can send them via the, your platforms or on Twitter at uh, hashtag Cato California. And I've got a couple I want to start off with here. You mentioned the, the need to prioritize the creation of good paying jobs, uh, right? which you know sounds a bit like a stereotype. Every, every politician has ever run for office says he's for good jobs at good wages or something of that nature. How would you go about that? We've, we've already seen, we've had some discussion today that the idea of just simply mandating it seems counterproductive. I mean, it, you get Kroger closing their stores when you right. demand that they pay more and stuff like that, and that just hurts low-income neighborhoods. How, how would you go about uh, incentivizing the creation of good-paying jobs? Well, I think what you do is that most of it is, first of all, they've got to improve the regulatory environment. Um, you're not going to create jobs that, that employ you know, a middle and working class people if they can't afford to live nearby or, or even live not so nearby. Um, so obviously the regulatory side, you know, you just have to, um, you know, you have to not impose incredible conditions vis-a-vis -vis climate, make it very hard 
for those jobs. There are positive things that we could do in California. I mean, we have industries, for instance, like space, where I think we have some great advantages that we can build on. And there, there may be some sort of government in, uh, encouraged uh, cooperation between various companies. I think that might work particularly in the local level. Uh, the city of Long Beach is, uh, to me, is the great model of how you can do it. Um, they've also developed in their education system, both K through 12 and, and the community colleges, and most particularly um, the uh, Cal State, to line up with the manufacturing, trade, and, um, and space industries that flourish there. Um, so, but we have to be able to say, look, um, you have to have a, an environment, you know, when people want to build something and let's say at like Tahone Ranch and they spend 20, 30 years trying to get it approved, you know, you don't think these developers and these companies talk to each other and they'll say, you know, um, they'll, I'll never do that again. I'll never go to a place where for six months I'm sitting around, you know, or, uh, to get the minor approvals and I could be 10, 20 years. That's why people move to Texas. That's why they move to Tennessee. That's why they moved to Arizona. Believe me, none of those places are nicer than California. Uh, and I would argue particularly Southern California, but California in general is a great place. But if you make it impossible for anything but the most elite jobs and the low end service jobs, you're going to have a profoundly un, uh, unequal society. Yeah, definitely. And one of the areas where, the, you know, you talk about people talk a progressive game and then don't uh, follow through is on education. And oh, this God. is an area, uh, you know, you know, in San Francisco where the schools are closed, leaving uh, poor and uh, underserved children uh, unable to get the education they need. But the school the district is spending a great deal of time trying to figure out how to rename the schools mm -hmm. uh, and stuff of that nature. Uh, it, this seems emblematic of, of kind of an ongoing situation. You talk about it as feudalism. There's certainly a power differential in here where you, the elites have a, one set of concerns and uh, the people affected by them seem to have a very different set of concerns. How can that, how can that power differential be overcome? That's a great question. I mean, I think it's going to be a very difficult. A, the media, with very few exceptions in California, is essentially a one-party media. I mean, it's, you know, um, I mean, I remember working on some pieces um, for an editor of a major newspaper here, uh, which showed, you know, some of the numbers of where California was relative to the rest of the country. And my editor said to me, I never heard this. This is never in the paper. So I had to show her the BLS or census <laughs> numbers to show her that, that I wasn't making this up. Um, so first of all, you have to figure out some way to uh, get people to know what's going on. Now, the good thing is the polling is showing that people are beginning to become uh, aware of what the regulatory environment is doing in California. So there is some hope there. Um, I think you really have to come up with a very practical program. I mean, when I look at education um, in particular, um, you know, I don't think a lot of parents really want their kids to be, you know, uh, giving, uh, you know, Aztec uh, war cries or, you know, or that they want their kids to not have to do well in math because math is racist or something like that. 
the problem we have, and it's not just in California, but it's intense in California, and is that our teachers are and our teachers unions have become essentially the the, the you know the new red guards. I mean, they're they they adopt incredible um, incredibly in quote progressive or far left ideologies. Um, they are uh, they are not. They are, they are not anxious in many cases to open the schools. Um, and they, they know that they have the politicians. I had a friend, a Democrat, who was a state senator, and she told me that it went on bills on education, the way that members of the Democratic caucus voted was they looked at their phones and, and were told what to do by the lobbyists of the teachers' unions. That's probably not the best way to make education policy. Um, and I think also that I think there's a desire to get a have a skill, learn something that can actually get you somewhere. And we've been moving in the exact opposite direction. Many states, by the way, uh, I know Tennessee in particular, but there are other states, Ohio, that have really uh, emphasized skills training. So, like one program I know, they take young kids in places like Cleveland and they train them how to be welders. And they get good jobs in 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 uh, in Ohio. We don't seem to be interested in doing that at all. At all, and of course, there's not a lot of motivation if manufacturing and other blue collar jobs are disappearing. Then what's the motivation of learning those skills? Question at the end uh, on kind of how to do this. Uh, where should uh, people focus their attention? Is this a state level, local level, counties? Where's where's the uh, weak point in terms of changing things? Well, I mean, the state is, of course, the big enchilada and the what's going, you know, what the, that's who sets policy. So that has to be it. But it has to be at the local level, the city level, the county level. Um, I mean, one of the things I've noticed, um, having moved from Los Angeles to Orange County, the fact that there's a two-party system in Orange County means that Democrats have to be more reasonable Republicans have to compete for independent voters. They can't all, you know, be on the Looney Tunes, right? Um, so I think that that um, having a two-party system in your community is probably the most important thing. What worries me the most about California is we have we have a one-party system, and and when I talk to my friends who are the last moderate Democrats, what they'll they'll say is, I don't worry about the right in California. I worry about the left. I worry about a challenger to my left. I don't worry about losing to a more conservative Republican. So the the, the key thing is how do we restore a two-party system? And I, I just, not that I should give advice to conservatives um, uh, that they don't want, but you know, you can't run the John Coxes of the world. You can't run mini Trumps and hope to win in California. You gotta be something else. You gotta, you gotta have a, a moderate conservatism that's practical um, that maybe independents and some Democrats will vote for. Well, thank you very much. And, okay. uh, you know, I, as a libertarian, I often tell both liberals and conservatives what they should do. So, uh, so, but thank you very much for being with us. Uh, say it is a great book. I, I did misspeak. It is, it is out. Uh, but it, people should definitely read it. It's, it's, it's an excellent book. Uh, the, and uh, we're glad you could be with us today. We're going to move right into our next speaker, uh, Matt Zwolinski, uh, who's going to deliver our closing address today. Matt, a longtime friend of mine, is, is specializes in political philosophy and applied ethics. 
uh, at San Di- at the University of San Diego. He's the director of the university's Center for Ethics, Economics, and Public Policy. Uh, he's the editor of Arguing About Political Philosophy and is currently writing or editing four books. So he is definitely prolific, if nothing else. Uh, and uh, I have to give him uh, a special uh, plug because he blurbed my book. So, uh, so I got to give him credit for that. Uh, anyway, Matt, take it away. Thank you. Uh, and good afternoon, everyone. Um, I want to thank uh, the Cato Institute and especially Mike Tanner in particular for organizing this. And, uh, and by this, I mean not just this conference, but really this entire project on poverty and inequality in California. Um, like Mike said, we've, we've been friends for a long time. I've been a fan of uh, Mike's work for a long time. Uh, I think his book, on the inclusive economy is is absolutely terrific. And for those of you out there who haven't read it already, I, I really do highly recommend it. I, I didn't get paid for that blurb. It was, uh, <laughs> it was from the heart. Uh, Mike, one of the things I really admire about Mike's work, I think, is, is the fact that he's done more than just about anybody I know to really build bridges between people who see the world in very different ways and to use those bridges to bring people together, not just to talk and to share ideas, but to really make real meaningful differences in the world. Uh, and so I've I've just been delighted to listen to the other really fantastic and diverse speakers at this conference. And uh, and I'm really honored to play some small role in it uh, myself. So, so thank you for that. Uh, so about 10 years ago, uh, I started a blog with uh, a few other academic philosophers and economists. Uh, all of us were libertarians of one sort or another. I think all, all five, we were, we were like the five libertarians in uh, higher education. Um, we all had strong appreciations for the virtues of free markets, uh, and we all had a healthy skepticism of government power. Uh, but none of us were exactly dogmatists, uh, we thought, at least. <laughs> we all recognized that the critics of libertarianism had some good points. Uh, and in particular, we took seriously in a way that some other libertarians seem not to the idea of social justice. The idea that is that when you're evaluating a society, you ought to judge it at least in part from the perspective of the poor, the marginalized, and the oppressed. Um, that what matters is not merely how wealthy a society is or what kind of opportunities are open to its average citizens, but whether the wealth and opportunity of a society are genuinely open to all. So we wanted to come up with a name for the blog that we hoped would convey that idea in a relatively pithy way. And uh, after a bit of back and forth, we eventually settled on the name Bleeding Heart Libertarians. Uh, And the motto of the blog was free markets and social justice. So I'm telling you the story today because I think there's an important idea here about how we might go about building a more inclusive economy for California. Uh, Too often, I think, we approach political issues with what you might call a zero-sum mentality. Uh, There are two sides to the issue, and one side can only win if the other side loses. So pick your side and get in line. You're either conservative or a liberal. You're either for free markets or big government. You're either for freedom or for equality but you can't, you can't possibly be for both. Except it turns out that on a lot of issues, and I think indeed on some of the most important issues facing Californians today, you can't. The supposed conflict between free markets and social justice is largely, not entirely, but largely a myth. 
And it's a myth, I think, that's built upon an even deeper myth. The myth that what government regulation is really all about is helping the poor. Now, if you believe that myth, you're going to think that if you support the poor, you've got to support government regulation. And if you're opposed to government regulation, well, then you're really opposed to helping the poor. But as I want to show in the remainder of my talk, that's often simply a mistake. And it's a pernicious mistake that undermines our ability to work together across ideological lines to address urgent social problems in an efficient, humane, and liberating way. So I want to talk about two examples from the world of public policy to illustrate my point. And I'll start with what is probably the most obvious example of this phenomenon and one that's already come up several times at this conference, and that is the phenomenon of housing regulation. Now, everybody knows how expensive it is to buy a home in California, but a lot of people, in my experience, with my students and talking about this with members of the general public, a lot of people think that's just because California is a really nice place to live, <laughs> which of course it is, uh, I'm a California native. I've lived here all my life, apart from a brief stint in Arizona for graduate school. And uh, it's a really nice place. A lot of people want to live here. There's only so much land to go around. And so it stands to reason, sort of, that it's more expensive to buy a house here than it is in all those other dreary, wet, gray states in the nation. Uh, but of course, as flattering as that story might be to our egos, it's far from the whole truth. The more important truth is that housing is expensive in California because we choose to make it so. And we choose to make it so because, let's face it, it serves the financial self-interest of the people who already own homes in California for the housing prices to continue to rise. Speaking as a California homeowner myself, uh, I admit there is a not-so-small part of me that has enjoyed watching my house price shoot up on Zillow over this last year. Uh, like a lot of Californians, I view my house not just as a place to live, but as a kind of investment. And like any investment, I like to see it appreciate over time. But look, as a policymaker, you can't have it both ways. You cannot promote policies that lead to home prices going up and up every year and simultaneously promote policies that make housing affordable to everyone. This really is one of those cases where constrained by the laws of economics, you do have to choose one or the other. And I'm going to let you guess which horn of that dilemma policymakers are going to choose just about every time. If you've got to choose between protecting the interests of people who own homes in California and who vote, and the interests of people who might like to own a home in California, but who can't afford to live here, simple political survival dictates that you're going to choose the former group just about every time. And so we're left with policies that make it easy for neighborhoods to veto new apartment complexes, with policies that mandate setbacks, minimum parking spaces, keep density low, and that put obstacle after obstacle after obstacle in front of new development. The result of this suite of policies, as a number of economists, urban planners, and other concerned observers have been recognizing for a long time now, has been a litany of disasters. So just to focus on a few of those disasters, instead of attracting workers to human capital hubs where opportunities for work and productivity multipliers are high, restrictive zoning drives workers away. According, and just to flesh that out, according to one estimate by Enrico Moretti working with Sheng Tai-She at the University of Chicago, 
Two of the three worst offenders in restrictive land use and regulations in the entire United States are right here in California, San Francisco and San Jose. The third one's New York City. What they found was if regulatory barriers to new housing construction in just those three cities had been pared back to just the median national level, the resulting influx of workers and the increase in labor mobility would have raised overall US output by 9.7%. And just to be sure that you heard that correctly, because it's kind of hard to believe, that's an increase in overall US economic output of almost 10% just from loosening housing restrictions in three cities. Restrictive zoning makes it harder for workers to go where the jobs are and thereby acts as a massive, massive drag on economic growth. But it's worse than just this. Restrictive zoning not only slows growth, it also exacerbates economic and social inequalities. Zoning laws work by keeping poor people away from rich people and often to keep people of color away from whites. Through explicit racial zoning in the past, and through policies that price minorities out of desirable neighborhoods today, these policies prevent people of color from building equity and appreciating homes, thus exacerbating the racial wealth gap. And because public schools are linked to neighborhoods, they also worsen educational inequality, which in turn feeds back into greater inequality of wealth and income in the future. But this means our housing policies perpetuate ethnic and socioeconomic disadvantage from one generation to the next over and over again. So what we have here in the case of housing policy is a clear-cut case where moving in the direction of freer markets, cutting down on government regulation, allowing people to build on the land that they already own, would at the same time be a move in the direction of social justice. Current housing policy benefits relatively well-off homeowners at the expense of those who are too poor to afford a home. And it does this not by accident, but by design. So what we have here, I want to argue, is not a zero-sum choice between freedom and fairness. This is a case where we could actually have both, but in fact, actually have neither. Here's another one. Like all states, California places restrictions on who can do what kind of work. In order to practice law or medicine or even drive a taxi or work as a cosmetologist, you need to get permission from the government. But while every state has occupational licensing requirements of some sort, California stands out uh, in the way that usually California stands out, right, in being one of the worst at something, uh, in both the number of occupations it licenses and the extensiveness of the requirements that it must be met in order to obtain a license. Now, You've already heard a great overview of the problems of occupational licensing from Anastasia, uh, who's really done a lot of terrific work with this in the Pacific Legal Foundation. Uh, and what I'm going to say here is going to repeat some of the points that she's already made, but it's such a tremendous and in some ways just unbelievable problem that I think a lot of these points bear repeating. So here's one. In 2015, more than one in five working Californians, that's 20.7% of the state's workforce, required a license from the government in order to do their jobs. One in five Californians required a license from the government in order to do their jobs. Among 76 low to moderate income occupations, so we're focusing on the bottom end of the, uh, of the economic distribution here, the average aspiring worker is required to spend 827 days in training and to pay $486 in fees 
before they're allowed to start even day one on the job. Now, I teach this stuff every semester in class and students are always shocked, but students quickly recover from their shock and say, well, look, of course, we need this, right? I mean, we need occupational licensing in order to protect the public safety, right? Protect consumers, protect public safety. When you've gotten a medical emergency and the EMTs show up at your door, you want to make sure those people have been properly trained and that they're competent to do what's really a very demanding job. But as Anastasia pointed out, public safety just doesn't explain what's going on with occupational licensing here in California or elsewhere in the nations too. Cosmetologists are currently required to undergo 10 times as many months as trainings as EMTs. Commercial door repair contractors in California are required to undergo 39 times as much training as EMTs. And I seriously doubt, maybe you can prove me wrong on this, but I seriously doubt that our commercial door operators here in California are really that much safer than the door repair people in the 26 other states that don't require a license for that profession at all. And really, we don't have to speculate about this. There are a large number of academic studies now that have found that the connection between occupational licensing and consumer safety or product quality is either thin at best or non-existent at worst. Occupational licensing simply doesn't seem to make consumers any better off, but it does succeed in raising prices and enriching already established members of the licensed profession. It also succeeds, of course, in making it harder for people to find work, especially lower skilled, lower educated populations, immigrants, people with criminal records, people who move frequently, such as military spouses. Uh, most studies also find that licensure has a disproportionately negative impact on racial minorities. And like housing policy, licensing is a policy that not only slows down economic growth, but increases economic inequality as well. Uh, it slows down economic growth largely by hindering the market's ability to match skilled labor to consumer demand. We have different licensing requirements, right? Between different states. That makes it really hard to move from one state to another because you have to start this licensing process over again, probably from day one. One study estimated that up to 36%, there's a, up to 36% reduction in labor mobility that's attributable just to occupational licensing laws. And again, like housing policy, the cumulative cost of this policy can be just absolutely staggering. Uh, so a couple of economists, Janet Johnson and Morris Kleiner, estimated that California licensing has cost almost 196,000 jobs annually. That has resulted in over 840 million in lost annual output. Uh, and that it's created, here's the really staggering number, it's created over $22 billion in annual costs through the misallocation of labor and other resources, right? We're just not using labor and other resources as efficiently as we could to meet consumer demand, and those opportunity costs really start to add up. So two different public policy areas, housing, occupational licensing, both of them defy what I call the usual zero-sum logic of politics, which tells us that we face a trade-off between strong economic growth on the one hand and an equitable, inclusive economy on the other hand. The usual logic is, look, either we slash regulation and we let the market rip, and that gets us rapid economic growth, or we clamp down on the market, regulate and redistribute more heavily, and that reduces inequality and broadens opportunity, but slows down economic. These two policy areas, and I would argue these are just two of many, 
show that it's possible to get the worst of both worlds. Uh, both these policies create a massive drag on economic growth while at the same time making our economy less inclusive and more unequal. And they aren't just flukes. It's not just that we got really unlucky or that our policymakers don't know what they're doing. Quite the contrary. Our policymakers know exactly what they're doing. And in most cases, our policymakers are responding perfectly rationally to the incentives generated by the rules of electoral politics. Those rules dictate that if you want to stay on office, if you want to raise money for re-election, if you want to win support from other policymakers for your own pet policies, you've got to play the game of rent-seeking, which means you've got to support the interests of the people who bring you the money and the votes even if that's bad for the economy as a whole, which it usually is, and even if it's particularly bad, which it usually is, for the poorest and most vulnerable members of that economy. So where does that leave us? Well, on the one hand, the news is very bad. We here in California have a lot of policies that are bad from both a conservative and a liberal perspective. They're bad for both economic growth and for inclusion and equity. From a menu of trade-offs between costs and benefits, we've chosen an order that consists of all costs and no benefits. That's the bad news. The good news is, well, it's the good news you can give anyone who's hit rock bottom, which is there's nowhere to go but up. Um, but more seriously, the good news is that I think we're living through a time of political realignment, a time where what it means to be a Democrat or a Republican a liberal or a conservative, is changing. And with that realignment comes an opportunity, I think, an opportunity to rethink some of the oppositions that we've taken for granted in our political life. For too long, we've simply assumed that a libertarian or conservative appreciation for free markets can't be reconciled with a progressive concern for social justice, that you've got to pick one or the other. But maybe now is a good time to rethink that assumption. But creating good policy is hard enough without making it even harder on ourselves by self-imposing these dichotomous ideological identities and refusing to work with or even listen to anybody who doesn't belong to the same team. If we could start to tear those ideological barriers down, then we can start to work together to make real change, to improve the transparency of political decision-making, to make rent-seeking more difficult, to think in innovative ways about how to create win-win policies that promote economic growth and greater equity, and to once again make California a place that welcomes innovation, entrepreneurship, and creativity, not just from a select few, but from anyone with the courage and the grit to give it a shot. Thank you. Thank you, Matt, really appreciate that. And I'm, I'm glad you went last because I would not have wanted everyone else to have to follow that. No. <laughs> uh, terrific, terrific set of remarks. And I do wanna associate myself with the, the tenor of them and the idea that we can do well while doing good, so to speak, on these things. But, and I, actually, that brings me into kind of the opening question that I have for you, which is kind of a broad one. You're an ethicist and a philosopher. Uh, so taking that into account, 
What should be the purpose of public policy? I don't think there's just one. Uh, I think uh, we, as, as an ethicist uh, and, and, a, and a political philosopher, one of the things you learn fairly quickly, I think, or that you should learn fairly quickly in, in those lines of work is that uh, any, any theoretical attempt to reduce complex phenomena to just one thing, right? It's really all about maximizing utility or it's really all about respecting individual liberty um, is ultimately going to be bound to fail. Um, there are a lot of things that we care about uh, as human beings uh, in our own individual lives. There are a lot of things that we care about uh, as human beings living in political community with one another. Uh, and so the nature of ethics or the uh, purpose of public policy, I think, is going to be um, correspondingly uh, multifaceted. So for instance, I think you know, you know people who, who care about economic growth are absolutely onto something, right? Uh, economic growth matters a lot. Uh, it matters a lot partly because it makes our lives uh, more comfortable. Um, it's nice to have nice things. It's nice to have air conditioning. It's nice to have um, clean drinking water and indoor plumbing. And those are all great comforts that economic growth has given us. Um, but economic growth is also important because it ties into other things that we care about. It ties into, for instance, our sense of meaning uh, and purpose in life. Uh, work is not, after all, just about earning money so that you can buy uh, those things that give you comfort. Uh, work is part of uh, how we find meaning and purpose and community in our lives. Uh, it's not the only way that we can find meaning and purpose and community in our lives. There are people who, who don't work, who, who stay at home and you know, don't work in the paid labor market anyways, but who stay at home and um, take care of a, a family, for instance, um, who can find meaning in other ways. But work is, for a lot of people, the main source of meaning and purpose in their lives. Uh, and so policies that make it hard for people to work, that make it hard for people to do the kind of work that gives them meaning, right? Uh, not every job is necessarily gonna be equal, equally meaningful to every person. Um, those kinds of policies are gonna be bad, not just from a kind of perspective of, oh, we're slowing down aggregate economic growth. Um, they're gonna be bad because they, they make it, they, they're, they're alienating people, right? They're deeply alienating to people. And I think as we've seen over the last four or five years uh, in America, uh, this sense of alienation, the sense of not belonging, of not fitting in, of not having a purpose and a place in the world um, can be very destructive. Uh, it can be destructive on an individual level to your personal health in terms of you know, where you're driven to, in terms of drug uh, and alcohol use to, to cope with that lack of meaning. Uh, and it can be very destructive socially and politically, I think, as well. Um, so, sorry, you asked a philosopher uh, 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 a big a big question, and and uh, the an the answer is is big too. There's there's a lot of things uh, that are linked together in, in complicated kind of ways, and uh, uh, the the tricky business of public policy is is a way of is 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 finding a way to balance those competing values in a way that uh, that makes sense. Well, let me force you out of academia for a minute there. Having given you the academic question, uh, let me bring you into the more political or practical world. So I'm all not right. sure they're the same thing at all. <laughs> on that, but, but one of the recurring themes of this conference has been this power differential uh, idea. The idea that we have elites who make the rules and then 
sort of powerless, uh, marginalized communities that, uh, that have to live with them and are generally hurt by them. Whether you call this feudalism, as Joel was just talking about, or structural racism, uh, which you can see given the history of many of these rules and regulations from zoning to occupational licensing and so on, uh, it doesn't really matter what you call it, but what you have is the group of people who just don't have the power to overcome the, the elites. How can, you know, how can we win this fight? How do you put together a coalition of the powerless, so to speak, and who can take on the entrenched special interests, the teachers unions, the politicians in Sacramento, the wealthy suburban homeowners that, well, you see Robert Reich arguing against zoning law, you know, re relaxing zoning laws uh, right alongside uh, the most conservative, the hardcore Trumpians out there. So how, how, do you, how do you take that on? Yeah, I've, I believe me, I have listened with great interest to the answers that uh, the other speakers at this conference have given to that question as you've as you've posed it to them. And uh, and it, it, there's been some great ideas, uh, but it's it's a really hard question. Um, it's one thing for an academic economist or philosopher to point to a public policy and say, here's the problem with what you're doing. And here's here's something else that you could be doing that would make a lot more sense. Uh, it's quite another thing to take that good idea and get it implemented in public policy, especially if, as I said, policymakers are responding rationally to the incentives that the political system creates for them. Uh, so how how do you change that system in a way that um, that undermines rent seeking, right? And that that makes uh, policymakers more responsive to the interests of the whole community and not merely the interests of a, a narrow portion of that community. Uh, there are there are things you can try, right? I'm not I'm not optimistic uh, enough to say like here's a foolproof solution that's definitely going to solve the problem. But there are, there are things we can do that move stuff in the right direction, right? So um, the more information people have, the better. Right? The more people know about these policies, the better. Uh, the more we can teach about this in colleges, the more public awareness there is of the way these policies work, the better. Uh, the more we can strengthen relatively impartial areas of government, like at the federal level, the Government Accountability Office um, or the Office of Management and Budget, uh, to provide impartial analyses of the effects and redistributive nature of different kinds of public policy, um, the better. Uh, Cass Sunstein and Ed Glazer, right, a kind of liberal libertarian pair, um, argued for extending central review of regulation under the Office of Management and Budget, not just to the, from the federal level, but all the way through the states. Um, that's something that I think has some, some merit to. Uh, so that's one kind of approach. I think um, shifting decision-making venues when we can. Uh, so this is an idea that uh, Brink Lindsay and Stephen Tellis, uh, two people I know you know quite well, uh, talk about in a recent book of theirs called The Captured Economy, which is a really excellent analysis of both the problem of rent-seeking and different kinds of solutions to it. Uh, and one of the solutions they talk about in that book is shifting decision-making venues, right? So that um, decisions about public policy are made in forums that are relatively unbiased and relatively open to input from a variety of different sources. So if we're talking about education reform, for instance, there's a big difference between having schools made schools, which are easily manipulated by and captured by powerful special interests like the teachers unions, from having it there or from having it under mayoral control, which is still not perfect, 
but which at least allows for a broader range of voices to be heard. It's less uh, easy for special interests to capture and manipulate the decision-making process to suit their own ends. So that kind of shifting, zoning decisions, right? Zoning decisions are made at the local level almost exclusively now. If we can move it away from the local level, move it towards the state level um, or the municipal, uh, sort of county level at least, uh, anything, you know, so the broader the interest groups that you have to take into account in making your decision, the less likely that any one particular interest group is going to dominate that decision making. Um, there might also, I don't know, this is maybe more speculative, um, but there might also be a, a role to be played by kind of an expanded vision of judicial review um, at some point in the future. Um, for, for almost a century now, uh, the Supreme Court has been very, very hesitant to um, overturn any kind of economic regulations passed by Congress. Basically, as long as some somebody somewhere can come up with some half-assed sounding idea of why this might be a good idea, the Supreme Court's going to defer to Congress. Um, if we can change that, uh, and that means going back to something like the much maligned Lochner area, era, or at least something in that direction, if we can give the Supreme Court um, and and uh, and lower courts a greater role in reviewing economic regulation. I think that would do a lot, and I think there's good philosophical and political rationale for doing that. Um, you know, economic liberty matters to people, uh, and and a lot of our jurisprudence is based on what I think is a very misleading idea that there's this hierarchy of liberties. Right, civil liberties are way up here. Those are super, super important. Economic liberties, those are kind of down here. They're not. They're not that important. I don't think that's well grounded. And I think if we can elevate economic liberties to something like where civil liberties are, uh, and treat them with the same deference and respect, um, that that would go some distance towards solving a lot of the problems we face with not just over regulation, but uh, pernicious and. Um, um, inefficient and uh, regressively redistributive regulation. Well, thank you. I'm going to give you one minute here to answer to John's question uh, from the virtual platform to give you a chance to clarify something. Uh, you're not saying that training per se is bad. Uh, you know, you, you want your EMTs trained. Uh, that's not what you're talking about when you're talking about occupational licensing, right? Got about one no, minute here. Course, right? So occupational licensing means getting it. You need to have a license from the government in order to um, to perform your job, meaning that the government is going to decide what kind of training everybody needs and not allow anybody who doesn't have the training it thinks they need uh, to perform a job. Uh, that, I think, is generally a bad idea. Uh, but of course, training itself is a great idea. And there are a lot of professions uh, in the United States that are licensed in some states and not licensed in others. And that doesn't mean that the people who are getting, who are practicing that profession in the, license, in the states where they're not licensed aren't getting trained. They're getting trained. Consumers want them to be trained. Um, and employers, the people who are gonna be hiring these people want employees who know what they're doing. So there are already lots of incentives just in the marketplace for people to acquire adequate training. The problem I think is when you politicize that process. Um, that's where um, the rent seeking comes in. That's where you know you restrict the supply, you increase uh, the wealth of a small class, and you make everybody else just generally speaking worse off. Well, thank you, Matt. Really appreciate uh, your being here tonight and helping to close this out. 
Uh, I want to thank everybody who attended today's uh, conference on After COVID, Building an Inclusive Economy for California. Uh, recordings of this event will be uh, available on our Cato website shortly after the event's conclusion. So you can watch it again. Uh, it's every bit as good the second time through, I want to tell you. Uh, but if your friends and neighbors and coworkers haven't seen it, uh, they can watch it as well. I hope people will uh, pass news of this around. Uh, also hope that you will stay on for the uh, roundtable discussions that are taking place. If you're on the main event platform, uh, you'll have uh, you have three different discussion groups, one on social justice, one on nationwide perspectives, and one on economic inclusion. And I hope you'll go to those and you can continue the discussion and uh, networking there. Uh, finally, I just want to make take a moment to thank several people who have helped make this possible. Mackenzie Johnson and the entire conference staff, they have been absolutely incredible in making all this work. It, it's no easy feat to put all the moving parts together and I couldn't be more grateful for them. Also, my two assistants, uh, Kelly Lester and, uh, and David Hervey, uh, they're the project assistants on this. They're working not just this conference, but the entire Cato project on poverty and inequality in California. They are terrific. Uh, every day I have some new demand on them and they get it done. So thank you for that. Um, I also want to thank our sponsors, uh, who, of course, none of this would be possible without them. So thank you to all of our Cato sponsors who make these things possible. Uh, the project is ongoing. Uh, our next conference will be October 21st in Sacramento, hopefully live. Uh, if the state continues to open up, I hope to be there. And before that, I hope to be coming back to California and an opportunity to meet with many of you. So you'll be hearing from me, I'm sure. We're also going to continue to do a series of many seminars and many uh, video events. Uh, so I'm talking about a variety of project of topics. Uh, education, criminal justice are coming, some of the things that are coming to mind. Uh, they'll be coming up shortly. And uh, I want to thank you all for that. And finally, I guess we're going to leave you with this last video. Uh, thank you all again for coming. <laughs>